Right, are we going to read a little bit, um, a very familiar bit in Matthew, if we can have a, a, a look at that, and we'll ask the, the, the magical Lucy who throws things up on the screen. Um, it, it's, uh, it's like magic. I don't know how she does it. It's amazing. Anyway, this is what Matthew uh, uh, chapter 6, verses 7 to 15 says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Some translations say sins, as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive other people, when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, here's a scary statement. Your Father will not forgive you. There's interesting, isn't it? So forgiveness is a big issue, yes? Forgiveness is a big issue. Forgiveness is a distinctive, in my view. Forgiveness is a distinctive to the Christian lifestyle. There is no obligation in other world religions to forgive. In fact, there are in some almost an obligation to bear grudges and to bear grudges against particular people, and to bear grudges against uh, particular nations even. We are, we are unique. And interesting enough that we are also called to be humble. And here comes the great forgiveness misunderstanding. This is the great forgiveness, misunderstanding. And Jesus said quite a lot of challenging things about forgiveness, some of which, for example, John alluded to. So, Jesus once asked, um, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I forgive him? Do I forgive him seven times? And Jesus answered saying, no, 70 times seven, meaning endlessly, but obviously certain legalistic people have said, right, so I will say, I forgive you 490 times, and then that's it. I can bear you a grudge for the rest of my life with lots of poison inside of me because that's what keeps me safe and makes me happy. I don't know about you. I've met a lot of people in my life. Have you, have you met a few yet? Yeah. Okay. One of the saddest things when in, that you see in human beings is this bitterness. It's, it's, a, it's a life waster. It just messes people up. 
did a funeral this week. The funeral this week, um, early, early on in the week, and it was a guy, and he was estranged from his family. So when he died, nobody claimed his body, and public health claimed his body. And he hadn't told his family that he was ill because he was estranged from them. And we did manage to have a bit of a funeral, which was, which was cool. And some we got, we managed to get in touch with some of the family who came. And there was a lot of regret in that room because there'd been estrangement, there'd been hurt, and then there was no chance of restoration. That's a sad story, isn't it? It's a sad story. Yeah, we were sad. We were sad by the situation. Bitterness is a terrible thing. And yet, it almost suggests, like, like the question, which is at one end, there's like, I have been wronged by you. And unless you are prepared to publicly grovel to me, maybe every day for a year, to, to express how terribly sorry you are, then I'm going to bear a grudge against you for the rest of my life. And the alternative is this. Here I am. Wrong me as much as you like. Beat me up. Kill me. Rip me off. Because somehow I'm morally obliged to just suck it up. There's quite extreme, really. Which, which end do you fancy, by the way? I, I've got to be honest, right? My, my natural inclination is fairly vicious. I've, I've got to be honest. Praise God, Jesus transforms us. I'm not somebody who does, but I'll tell you, I know, and this is unusual, but I know three people in my life. I'm 147 years old now, so I've met a lot of people, but I know three, is this unusual, who, who can remember every single wrong that was ever done them. They can go right back to primary school, to people in their 20s who cheated when they were playing golf, to, and they haven't let any of it go at all. A couple of them I know are between 85 and 95, so that's a lot of stuff to carry, isn't it? No, they haven't let go anything. That's something, isn't it? Man? And the trouble is, for a lot of those people, is that everybody who did them wrong is now dead. So chances of apology, limited. How on earth do you put that right then? It's, it's, forgiveness is such a disastrous potential, isn't it? And yet the only spiritual teaching where we really see a proper solution is in the Bible, is through Christian discipleship. And I'm really surprised at that because you would have thought that if there were sort of wise life philosophies outside of Christianity, there would be an element that recognized the destructive power of unforgiveness. Before you get to the spiritual implications of unforgiveness, you would have thought there would just be that, wouldn't you? I'm really surprised at that, very surprised at that. 
Instead, it's the opposite. It's bear a grudge. It's get revenge. It's chase after honor. It's take satisfaction in karma. You'll get yours. This is, this is not helpful for human beings. Not helpful. And Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says the opposite. But before we even get to that, we've got to think about what Jesus says about the way that we have a relationship with God. And he says this, if you're going to talk to your Father in heaven, don't go ranting and babbling and howling and, and you know, sort of beating yourself up. It doesn't make any difference. You can genuinely just open up and be yourself because your father knows before you ask. And the implications of that are if somebody hurts you, God knows it. God knows it before he tells you, he knows it. And that's important. So, is there a line? Well, yes. But not the way you think. So, being a doormat, are we, are we all comfortable with the concept of doormat now? Yep. Yeah, I, those of you who didn't take a sleeping tablet, are you comfortable with the concept of doormat? Yeah? Yeah, good. Thank you. I was beginning to worry there. It's early in my talks for people to fall asleep, even for me. Okay. So a doormat is on a continuum, isn't it? There's like a line. And, and so a doormat, doormat isn't quite the extreme, by the way, because the extreme is martyr. This is where you set yourself up to get hurt so that you have a good excuse for pity. And I know that that sounds bizarre. In psychological terms, we call it secondary gain. But people really do this. Those of you who know about transactional analysis, this is classic passive-aggressive behavior. So actually, being a doormat is not the extreme of this continuum. But it you know, sort of slowly works its way through right to the point where the, you know, that sort of rhino stage where somebody's really prickly and liable to charge at the slightest inclination that somebody might have somewhere in the future been planning to say or do something wrong. And, and it's on a continuum. What isn't on that continuum is forgiveness. Forgiveness has got nothing to do with that. It's two different things. So in other words, how can I forgive and not be a doormat? These are two separate choices. The choice to forgive has got nothing to do with being a doormat. It's a different thing, and I hope I can explain that. And I hope I can explain it in the way that Jesus makes it clear that that's the deal. And the Old Testament talks about this. So maybe the problem is understanding what forgiveness is. Okay, so this is what the Bible talks about as being forgiveness. Forgiveness means that we give up pursuing any emotional business which is outstanding in relation to a hurt we have suffered at the hands of others. 
So forgiveness means that we give up pursuing any emotional business which is outstanding as a result of hurt we have suffered at the hands of others. In other words, we choose no longer to allow anger, resentment, or a desire for revenge, or a desire for punishment to emotionally link us to somebody who's hurt us. We don't use those emotions to link us to that person. And you might think, well, that all sounds rather extreme. I don't know, you ever had somebody who's hurt you, and every time you see them, it just annoys you? You know what I mean? There are bad habits, that breathing in and breathing out and breathing in, and you just so wish they would stop doing that. Have you ever, have you ever had that? You know what I mean? Just they, they, they sit down, and they somehow manage to sit down in an irritating way. Do you, you know, this is about having an emotional business with this person. It's linked. It's linked in that sense, and it's linked to a wrong. But if we choose... If we choose to continue to be linked to that person emotionally, we don't do it on the basis of feeling that we have been hurt or wronged anymore. We don't do it on that basis. Okay, so what we are essentially saying is, I don't have business with you about this wrong anymore. We're not doing that anymore. However, that doesn't in any way suggest that we should be foolish or forgetful or naive or unrealistic about the significance of what somebody may or may not have done and equally about the chances that it might be done again. And we'll go back to the Old Testament when we'll talk about this. So, in the Old Testament, God recognizes that when people sin, it really upsets them. And that his natural inclination when he gets upset is mostly to burn people to a crisp. Which, let's face it, being God, he has the inalienable right to do. It's a right that I've often suggested that he exercise on people that really irritate me, but sadly to date, he's never taken me up on that advice. Um, but on occasions, I still remind him that I have a list, and perhaps he could help me with it. It, it does change on occasions, as in, it's longer, but that's by the by. But in the Old Testament, God recognizes this, okay? But in His love and His mercy, He decides, well, destroying people is not a good idea because I love them. So what God decides to do is to put away His recollection of the wrong. He puts it away. That's, that's how the Bible describes it. It gets put away. However, what God doesn't do is in any way forget that human beings are dodgy. He remembers what people are like. He just chooses 
not to deal with them on the basis of the wrong that they've done and instead changes his behavior. We see God changing his behavior towards human beings. So he starts by giving people a framework in which to operate, not to make their lives miserable, but to enable them to stop doing things wrong. And that's very helpful. So he changes what he's doing. So what God says is, okay, if you're going to come into my presence, you have to do all these different rituals, and there's a really close bit, and only one person gets in there once a year. Why does God do that? So there's a place, if you don't know, in God's temple with the, with the children of Israel, there was a section called the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. One high priest, once a year, was allowed in there. Anybody else, death. Once a year, you were allowed into God's presence. Why did God do that? And the reason that God did that was because God knew that human beings are incapable of consistently treating God with respect. We are incapable of it. We lose ourselves when we start being contemptuous, and that was going to cause it. So God did not forget what people were like. He forgave them, but He didn't forget what they were like. He forgave them, but He didn't start being naive about human beings. He didn't do that. But because he wasn't going to be naive, it meant that he was able to forgive. Now, later on, Jesus arrives, and here's the thing. If we're with Jesus, we can go into God's presence at any time we like. Pressure on us, however, not to be contemptuous when we do that. How do we get that? God still knows what we are like. But now, instead of giving us outside rituals to keep us clean, we get the Holy Spirit to start altering our behavior so that we can do it better. God has still not forgotten what we're like. Does that make sense? Still not forgotten what we're like. So therefore, when we forgive, if we're going to forgive like God forgives, we are not obliged to somehow put our brain out of the window. So let's talk through a scenario. You and I are having a conversation, okay? We're having a conversation. And I say to you, do you know, this shop down the road has got steak pies that I really like, and currently they're going to be two quid each. And I really like steak pies. So for a tenner, that means I can get five. And you say to me, tell you what, I'm going past. I'll get them for you. Fab, I say, here's the tenor. And off you go. And there I wait. And wait. And wait. And after a while, I think, you're not coming back. So I give you a call. And I say, hello. You go, oh, hi, Graham. And I notice that, well, if I'm honest, your voice sounds just a touch slurry. I say, um, do you remember those steak pies? And you go, yeah, yeah, I didn't get them. I go, why, why didn't you get them? So, well, I was walking to the shop, and I passed this other shop, and I saw this particularly fine bottle of wine for a tenner. 
So I bought that instead. In fact, I'm drinking it now. So thanks for that, mate. And then you put the phone down. Apart from the fact that you haven't offered me a drink, <laughs> I'm unhappy now. That makes sense, doesn't it? Would you be unhappy? I mean, I'm a tenner down, five steak pies down, and a glass of wine down. I'm not happy. Anyway, because I'm like this in my huge graciousness, I think, okay, okay, that was a remarkably selfish thing for that person to do. Let's let it go. So I do. Now, I now have a choice, haven't I? Because the potential for me to put a tenor in your hand a second time will no doubt present itself. And I've got a calculation to make here, and it's like this. It's how likely is it for you to spend my tenor on your personal entertainment another time? Now, if the likelihood is high, giving you another tenor is neither doing you a favor nor me. It doesn't mean I haven't forgiven you. It just means that you, I know that you're dodgy with other people's money, I, uh, particularly mine. And being a jock, that's a fairly important thing. It's not really, actually, but you know what I'm saying. So the question is, when you say, hey, Grail, I'll get that for you, and I go, it's all right, mate, I'll do it myself. Is that because I haven't forgiven you last time, or is that just because I've learned what you're like? And I don't mean judgmentally, I'm being realistic here. Now, it might be that you say, well, that's a bit unfair, and you might be right. So the question would be, how many times do I choose to let you do this before I realize that in fact this is an area of unreliability for you, and if you keep doing it, it's actually going to spoil our relationship. Are you following all of this? Okay, none of this has got anything to do with forgiveness. I've forgiven you the tenor. You can keep the bottle of wine. I'm over it. Okay, I'm still hungry, but I'm over it. But I've still got to learn about how I want to deal with you which has got nothing to do with forgiveness. It's just simply to do well. However, if somehow I think that forgiveness means that I have to not do that, okay, two, three, four, five misappropriated tenors down the road, I'm going to have a significantly antagonistic attitude towards you. Is that fair for me to say? And you, being an insensitive sort of person, is walking around going, I used to be good mates with Graham, but he seems to have a thing about me now, and I don't know what it's about. You know, to which people go, have you got a thing about them? To which I have to go because I'm pretending that I've forgiven them. No, it's fine. We're all getting into trouble here, aren't we? Now, that's a problem, but it's not got anything to do with, unfor- with forgiveness. It's got to do with carrying on 
feeling like we're obliged to be walked all over, which is helping nobody. Does that make sense? Now, we can take this to very extreme situations, and it's important to do this. In a, in a previous life, I used to spend a lot of time helping uh, adults who had been sexually abused as children recover, or if that's the right word, move on from those experiences and begin to get over some of the traumatized behavior that they were showing in adulthood. Some of the people who had perpetrated these crimes had been caught and gone to prison. Some of them were dead, had died years ago. Not everybody I worked with was young. Some were in their 60s. The idea that you were somehow going to find a way to face this person up and make them acknowledge was often long gone. The whole dynamic had now transferred itself to inside, not outside. And it's that that then becomes difficult. But there are certain things, and this includes in the Bible, that we are told are necessary to help us to forgive. So I'm going to talk about a few of them, if I might. Is this okay? Are we, have I gone on too long? Are we okay? All right, okay, good. Right. Okay. So, number one, you cannot forgive somebody if you haven't identified what it is they did. Does that make sense? This is a biblical principle. Are you surprised at that? This is a biblical principle. So, when we apologize to God, we say, Lord, I have done this, and it was wrong because, and we acknowledge what's wrong. For a lot of people who've been quite badly hurt by, you know, very bad experiences, having somebody just help them by acknowledging that what was done to them was wrong is such an important part of forgiveness. Now, I don't know about you. Do you, do you like to find somebody that you can tell your story to? So somebody, somebody makes a mess and you want to tell people. Can I tell you something that happened yesterday? So my wife, bless her, is up in the north of England where her dad lives, and her and my 91-year-old father-in-law went out for a trip, and they visited a mill in, in, in a Lancashire town, because they have them, but it's like sort of all sorts of retail outlets and stuff like that now. And they parked up in the car park, and they went in for a, an hour or so, and then when they came back out, my wife phoned me and she said, my car sounds funny. And, and I said, well, I can't, I'm, I'm at the other end of the phone. I can't hear all the way to Lancashire. And, uh, you know, what's it sound like? Well, it sounds like the exhaust is gone. So I said, well, okay, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's gone a little bit. You know, can I get home to my dad's, which is about 20 miles away? I said, well, if the exhaust is gone, you'll still be okay to get home. So, you know, head off. So she phones me up about 10 minutes later and says, I started driving and it was a nightmare. There's something seriously wrong with my car. 
okay, best phone the AA then. So she phones the AA. And the AA come and they go, do you know what's happened? She said, no. I said, well, while you were in the car, while you were in the mill, somebody's come into the car park, jacked your car up, taken a power tool, cut your catalytic converter off your exhaust system and driven off with it. I'm not kidding you. This is a car with, those of you who don't know, a catalytic converter is the bit of the exhaust that, that changes your toxic gases into less toxic gases. And, and somebody had nicked it for all the metal. Right, this is not a new car. This is a 16-year-old Honda. Trust me, it's not exciting. Okay, if it was a Maserati, maybe. It isn't, <laughs> trust me. But somebody had jacked up her car. This is in the car park, right? We checked today, by the way, and the mill has CCTV footage of it happening. Somebody pulled up, jacked up the car, got underneath with, with like an angle grinder and cut this thing off and took it away. It's like, whoa. So are we, are we cross about it? No, I kind of got over it now. But how did we get over it? Well, we kind of talked a lot about it. We kind of said, that's ridiculous. Have you ever heard of this? Apparently, this is common in the north of England. The guy from the AA who drove my wife, bless him, drove my wife all the way home from the north of Lancashire to Shropshire, said this was the third one this month. Wow. Anyway, so what we did anyway was we talked it out and we went, that's not right. What's this about? Because, by the way, catalytic converters are not cheap. Um, and the law says you have to have one, so... But you kind of talk it out. And after a while, it becomes a lot easier to begin to let go of the business because somebody is acknowledging that what has happened is wrong. Does that make sense? One of the things, you know, at the other extreme I was talking about with uh, sexual abuse of children is that very much children are pressurized to keep those kind of things secret. And what we often forget is that people keep that secret right into adulthood and beyond and beyond. And it's never talked about, it's never acknowledged. And so it's very difficult to let it go because it's never out there. So the first thing with forgiveness is that doesn't mean that you're not allowed to say that what somebody has done to you is wrong. It doesn't mean that you're not allowed to point out that what's been done to you has hurt you maybe hurt you a lot. It's not unforgiveness to point out that that's been very difficult to deal with. None of this is getting in the way of unforgiveness. In fact, quite the opposite. It helps that to come out. Now, what I'm not saying is that you post it up on Facebook. You know, or, or you, you, you spread it around all your friends. That's just replacing one wrong with another wrong. But you're not being asked to keep your hurt secret. And if you can't tell anybody else, you can tell God. Does that make sense? So forgiveness doesn't mean pretending that what happened didn't happen. It doesn't mean pretending that it wasn't wrong. It doesn't mean pretending that it didn't do a lot of harm. All of those things are fine. 
And it raises other questions, which is not unforgiving to ask, like, can this person be trusted with my well-being, with my cash, with my steak pies, with, with, with my safety? It's fine to ask those questions, and if the honest answer is no, then it's not unforgiveness that tells you to change your behavior slightly, it's common sense. You're not being unforgiving. Are we following this? This is, none of this is doormat behavior. So, these are the things it's not. The other thing is to remember that sometimes if somebody is going to keep doing hurt, then after a while, they're maybe not a good person to be with. And even that doesn't necessarily mean that you're being unforgiving. It just simply means, I can't afford this relationship. Does that make sense? However, if during all of this, what you're insisting on doing is retaining this emotional agenda that you have with somebody about their heart, then you're damaging yourself by retaining that unforgiveness. Does that make sense? You followed all of this. Now, holding on to that, holding on to that only affects you. Chances are, and this used to really irritate me, I've got to say, people used to do me wrong, and, and I'd be really offended, and within, clearly within a day, they'd forgotten all about it. Two weeks later, I'm still cross. They're oblivious. Who's suffering here? Who's doing this? I'm doing the suffering. Not good. In, in Freedom in Christ, who's heard of the Freedom in Christ course? Right, so the Freedom in Christ course is like a discipleship course. It's fantastic. I've got to say, it's a really good course. And one of the things that it deals with is, is this issue about forgiveness. And it's well worth doing just for that alone, apart from all the other truths. And one of the things that they say, uh, which I really like, is that not forgiving somebody is a bit like you drinking poison and hoping the other person dies. Because the one who's suffering is you, not them. And it's that emotional connection to the wrong that's doing the harm. But we let that go. And the reason that we let that go is because it's a relationship spoiler. It spoils our relationship, yes, potentially with the person who's hurt us, but maybe that relationship is not going to happen. But we carry that heart into every other relationship, including our relationship with God. And that's not helpful. So we let it go. So, to make it straightforward, we're called to use love and grace. We are to be gracious to people. We don't carry grudges. We let it go. But that doesn't suggest that we should in any way be foolish or naive. You know, somebody drives like an idiot and you're in the car and you get a fright and you tell them, well, you really frightened me by the way that you drove. Um, and let's say you get in the car the next time and they drive like an idiot again. On the third occasion, you think that if I want to carry on being your friend, you're not doing any more driving of me. I can preserve this relationship 
by not getting in the car with you. For two reasons. Number one, I don't like you when you drive like that. Number two, you don't like me trying to cramp your style when you're wanting to be Nicky Lauda or Lewis Hamilton or other fast drivers. Watch my first Formula E yesterday. Have you watched Formula E? Electric racing cars. It was very exciting. The world's fastest racing car is electric. Did you know that? Pardon? No, really, genuine. Okay, not to 120 in 2.1 seconds and a top speed of 265 miles an hour. That is quick. Now, if somebody jacked that up and took its catalytic converter, <laughs> then I'd understand it. But that's by the by. I've let it go. Can you see how I've let that go? Can you see how I've completely forgiven it? Yeah. Joking, right. So, okay. So what we have to do then is forgive, but be wise. Be gracious, but be wise. So we're not kidding ourselves here. So forgiveness is our choice. Forgiveness is our choice. And we are called by Jesus to choose to forgive because He chose to forgive us. So we choose to forgive others because He chose to forgive us. It doesn't mean that what we did in life didn't hurt Jesus because it did, but He chose to forgive us. It doesn't mean that what other people have done to us didn't hurt. It did, but we choose to forgive it. That's important. We give up, because of this emotional thing, we give up our right, if you like, to fix the wrong. We give up our right. We leave it in God's hands. We go, God, you sort that. We don't go after revenge anymore. We stop doing it. So what I'm suggesting to you is this. Don't be a doormat. Please don't be a doormat. I'm very suspicious, if I'm really honest with you, about doormats. Okay, I, I, I always tend to lean towards this passive-aggressive thing and think, what's your angle here? Why are you playing the mortar? But don't, on Jesus' account, play the doormat because Jesus does not play guilt games with you and I. Forgiveness is clean and the business is done, and that's what's fantastic. So we don't play that with anybody else. But we are also not here to be walked all over. We have to be fair, mercy over judgment, always. Having said that, this is my very last point. Sometimes, sometimes, the right move in your Christian walk is to let somebody walk over you. But the difference is this. You choose to let them as opposed to either your own feelings of guilt or their power play makes you. Sometimes the right thing is to lay down and just let somebody walk through. Sometimes that's the right thing. But you only do it because you choose to, not because you have to. Do you know? 
Occasionally, I've put some cash in somebody's hand. Basically, I'm pretty sure they're ripping me off. But I'll err on the side of stupidity because that's the right thing to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, sometimes. But that's not being a doormat. That's because I choose to do it. And sometimes sacrifice is a good thing. But it's your choice. Not because you forced her, not because you feel guilty, but because you look the opportunity in the eye and realize that the right thing to do is to be humble, if you like, or to show grace. So I wouldn't say that we should never, ever, ever, ever be a doormat. Sometimes that is the right thing to do. What I would say, however, is that that has got nothing to do with forgiveness or unforgiveness. That's a different matter altogether. So I want to ask you a couple of questions, maybe for you to think about. Number one, do you struggle to forgive? And the question is, if you do, what needs to change for that to happen? Is there some hurt that you can't let go of, that you never really talk about? Are you just somebody who feels that you're always walked over? So you walk around with a kind of victim label on you? So that means that you just keep building up and building up and building up. Maybe there's a bit of talking out to be done with that. Our culture loves to drag up the past. The media loves to drag up the past. Do we live in a culture of unforgiveness? And do we as individuals have to start separating from that culture in order to learn how to properly forgive? Do we have to separate from our culture to learn how to properly forgive? And I suppose the last one that I'm interested in, I am interested in this, is how does the church help people to get over hurt or even forgive the people who've hurt them? We are called, the Bible tells us that the church is called to a ministry of reconciliation. How can we be that helpful? How can we as a church be helpful in enabling people to get over their hurt? Maybe even get to a point of being able to figure out, is there a role for the church to do that in this community? It's one of the things that we're called to do. So three questions. Have you got things that you struggle with? Do we need to separate from our culture to grow in forgiveness? And what can the church do? What can the church do to be more helpful in enabling people to forgive? That's my lot, John. <laughs>